0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today's subject, as we kick it off, is what the Bible says about suffering. Somebody had suggested, uh, and I thought that was a great topic, what the Bible says about suffering. It's, it's a great topic in that it's so appropriate and practical, and that suffering is such a part of our lives, isn't it? It's just a reality of life. As a matter of fact... That's one of the most dominant themes in all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is suffering. Uh, how God's people suffer, just people in general suffer. Suffering is going on all the time continually around the world. It's true in the Bible. Uh, I was surprised to see that some Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias did not even have the word suffering under the yes category. Some did and had great studies. Some just skipped it all together. Which I thought was amazing because this is one of the most universally applicable realities of human life. Unbelievers and believers alike is the reality of suffering. We all endure suffering and have to put up with it. As a matter of fact, from an unbelieving point of view, for the last, they tell us, 3,500 years, the number one critique against biblical religion, an insaliable argument against uh, biblical Christianity today, is supposedly the problem of evil and suffering. That The Bible, Christianity, and Jesus really can't answer that problem sufficiently. So they tell us. Uh, I would totally disagree. The Bible is all about suffering and evil. That's the theme of the book. What do you mean the Bible doesn't answer that question? So we've got answers. That's the good news from a Christian point of view. So we want to look at this topic, what the Bible says about suffering. Suffering. It's such a huge topic. It's overwhelming. I, mean, I could literally do a five to ten week series just on suffering because there's so much. Uh, but we're going to do our best. And I thought since today's theme is suffering, I'm going to preach for an hour and one minute to make you suffer. Then we're gonna, the deacons are going to turn the fans off in a second because we need some visual aids. But actually, again, it's just basic guidelines, basic principles, not to answer all of your questions, but to give you parameters by which to think and conceive and process this reality of suffering from a biblical point of view. And hopefully that will be a guide for you as a Christian to think, to live, and also to pursue further study on your own. So biblical principles of what the Bible has to say about suffering. And I just came up with five is the way I delineated those. First I want to give you I want to ask a couple of questions first to help us think practically, are you currently in a trial right now? Answer that in your own heart. Are you in, are you currently in a trial? Are you currently undergoing some kind of suffering? I want to define suffering. This encyclopedia does a great job. I couldn't improve on it, so just let me read it. Suffering: the experience of bearing a condition that is harsh or unpleasant. Suffering is what a person feels. Isn't that true? It, you know, it, it impacts the emotions like nothing else. Suffering is what a person feels as the result of pain, deprivation, distress or loss. Scripture most often speaks of physical suffering in terms of verses dedicated to it, but nevertheless, uh, the Bible recognizes other aspects of human suffering as well. Spiritual suffering, mental and emotional suffering, interpersonal suffering. It's a great definition. And then what I did is I just tried to... Oh, another question for you to think about. Uh, are you in a trial? Are you currently suffering? When was the last time? Can you think of the greatest trial or suffering you've ever had in your life? What was it? When was it? How did you deal with it? How did God mold you through it? How did you trust God through it? How did you fail to trust God through it? Uh, for me, that was a no-brainer in terms of the hardest time of suffering that I ever had. That I guess it would be two things. When I first became a Christian, and realized all of my my huge family, all my siblings and Parents were not saved. So that was a a tremendous uh, emotional distress that I had for years. The other one was when one of my best friends got killed in a car accident instantaneously uh, with his family. So next question. When was the last time you read Job? Think about that in your own heart. When was the last time you read Job? you can't remember, that means it has been too long. By God's grace, He gave us that book, one of the longest books in the Bible, probably the first book in the Bible in terms of its antiquity, 42 chapters. That's what the whole theme is about. Suffering, it is a, great, it is a real book. It is about the problem of suffering and evil. So I was able to go through that book this week and be reminded once again, what a, a, a tremendous book. And so we're going to look at some key verses in there. You can't talk about evil and suffering without talking about Job. That's why that book is there. That's what Paul said two times in the New Testament. Corinthians and Romans. That the Old Testament was given to us by God to the Christian church for our edification, for our benefit, for our consolation. We need to be in this book. So before we look at the really four key principles of suffering, point number one, we need to understand there are different kinds of suffering. Different kinds of suffering. Uh, There's physical suffering whether it's physical, medical condition. This can be an acquired physical condition that happened later in life. You got in a car accident, you got paralyzed, you lost your leg. Uh, Or it can be a congenital condition that you were born with, whatever that may be, some birth defect, some syndrome. So there's physical and health and medical suffering, and the Bible has that all over the place. Uh, There's also natural disasters and suffering that results From that, we've seen that recently in a lot of tornadoes and all kinds of horrible things and hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes, devastating hundreds of thousands of people's lives instantly and also in the aftermath. Natural disasters, that's all over the Bible as well. By the way, every single one of these uh, Job was subjected to. He got the full brunt of it all. Physical maladies, natural disasters. uh, See, life's circumstances brings suffering. Life is hard, isn't it? As the sparks fly upward, life is hard. I mean, that's what Job says. You got troubles in your life? Just expect it. It's reality. It's true of everybody. Life circumstances are hard and bring about suffering. D, or you could be a victim of evil and be suffering. You can be victimized by evil, sinful people. Whether they physically harm you, they steal from you and rob you, uh, whatever it is. So that's a kind of Suffering then finally E uh, that is accentuated in the New Testament of being Christ like his religious persecution. Suffering for being a Christian. Suffering for being... I was thinking of all A through E. I probably suffer less from E in my life. Really. On a drastic level. Nothing like the early church or Christians around the world being persecuted physically with their life because of their stand for Christ. But anyway, you can pretty much take any issue of suffering or trial in the world and in your life and dump it into one of these five categories. And every one of these are found in the Bible. And every one of these probably, yeah, every one of these Job was subjected to. So let's go ahead and look at just some basic principles about suffering. How do we deal with it from a godly and biblical point of view? And that's point number two. We'll go there first. And there is a reason for suffering. There is a reason. Contrary to the atheist or the agnostic or the critic of the Bible that says, well, your religion can't answer the problem of evil. Well, yeah, it can. Problem of evil and suffering. It answers it the entire, the whole Bible was written to answer that problem. You just don't understand the Bible. But let's look. I want to read through Job chapter 1 and 2. It's a long book, 42 chapters, but I do want to highlight the setting and a scenario out of Job 1 and 2. It gives you the gist of the whole book. This is a true story. Uh, Job probably lived around the time of Abraham or before Abraham. So 2000 B.C., 4,000 years ago, Job probably lived to be several hundred years old. We know he lived at least 140 years after all of his trials. He could have been a couple hundred years old when they happened. When they had great longevity back in those days in the time of Abraham. And so uh, verse 1 says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. uh, And that man, Job, was blameless, upright, fearing God. He wasn't perfect. He loved God. He knew God. He had a personal relationship with God. He was a man of faith. He walked with God. He was not perfect. He knew God. That's all that means. So he was a righteous man. He was a believer. He had a wife, one wife. As far as we know, he was not a polygamist. He was faithful to the institution of marriage, as God gave it in Genesis 2. He was fruitful and multiplied and had ten children, seven boys, three girls. And he was a good dad. Everything indicates he was a good dad. He managed his household well. He was a righteous man. He loved God. Verse 6, chapter 1. Now there was a day. Now, transition. Uh Uh-oh. Something bad's probably going to happen. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that's probably angels, could be good and bad, or one or the other, or both. There was a day when the sons of God or the angels came to present themselves before Yahweh. So angels in the spiritual world were allowed to have access to Almighty God, had an audience with God because God allowed them to have an audience. Angels are real. They presented themselves before Yahweh God here, the triune God of the universe. And Satan, the greatest of the demons, the greatest of the fallen angels, was in the mix, going before God to get an, an audience from God. And Satan also came among them, verse 7. And Yahweh said to Satan, From where do you come? God knows everything. He's just, he wants Satan to speak up, fess up. What are you doing? What are you up to? What's going on? Kind of like your parents do when you're in trouble, right? What are you doing? not a matter of not knowing. God knows what's going on. From where, to you, where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about the earth and walking around on it, exactly like 1 Peter 5.8 says, Behold, be on the alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour and shred to pieces. It's what he does today. It's what he was doing 4,000 years ago. Verse 8, Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Job is a righteous man. What do you think of Job? He's a stellar, believing saint. Satan, what do you think of him? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? So Satan is mocking God and saying, yeah, Job, he believes in you. He follows you. He's a godly man. It's because you protect him. That's why. Put a little suffering in his life and I I bet you, God, that Job will turn against you. So that's what Satan's up to here. Verse 10, Satan keeps talking. Have you not made a hedge about him? See, you've protected Job. You put a buffer around him. You know how when you go bowling and they put those little bumpers in the gutter so you never get a gutter bowl? I like those. But anyway, that's like a hedge, a protector. And that's what Satan is accusing God of. Yeah, Satan's, I mean, uh, Job is a righteous man, but you're protecting him. You're buffering him. He hasn't had any real trials in his life. You made a hedge about him in his house and all that he has on every side. You protect his kids, you protect his wife, you protect his finances. By the way, uh, Job was rich. He was filthy rich. Verses two and three of chapter one. Do you know it's not a sin to be rich? God is the one who gives wealth. It's what you do with it. And Satan say, "Man, you blessed him all over the place. You blessed, blessed the work of his hands." Verse eleven. And then Satan challenges God, but. On the contrary, put forth your hand, God, now, and touch all that Job has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Make Job's life miserable, God, and he'll turn on you, Yahweh. Wow. Amazingly, in verse 12, Then Yahweh, the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, said to Satan, Behold, get this. You're never going to believe this, Satan. I'm going to give you what you asked for. Behold, all that Job has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on Job. So God, it's amazing. God is in control. God sets the parameters. Satan has great, amazing delegated authority, but God is in charge. Satan has freedom, but Satan is on a leash. Satan is on a short leash. Satan is on God's leash. And that's what's going on here. God defines the parameters by which Satan is allowed to operate. Do you know that Satan can do nothing unless God has allowed it first? Think about that. That's a huge principle. Satan can do nothing apart from what God has allowed him to do ahead of time. Because God is in charge. Satan is not in charge. God is in charge. Satan uses things that God gives him, but God is in charge. Behold, all that he has is in your power, only don't touch him. You can do anything you want to Job you can mess with his finances his family his possessions but you can't touch Job physically and so because God laid down the decree, the decree then uh, Satan wasn't allowed to do that initially and so Satan is like licking his whatever chops or rubbing his wings together this is going to be fun and we see so and then instantly there are four devastating trials that come into Job's life Immediately that a result of the works of Satan to bring suffering into the life of Job. Quickly, what are they? Verse fifteen. All of a sudden the Sabaeans, some evil wicked people, they attacked and took Job's animals and his servants, or his animals. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. They just came in and wiped out all of most of Job's servants that worked for him and, and all of his animals. They took many of them. Boom. Instantly like that. This was controlled by Satan. Satan uses evil people. Satan uses nations even. Verse 16, what else did Satan do? The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants of Job and consumed them. Second thing that happened. Fire came down from heaven? Was that God? No, that was not God. That was Satan. Apparently, Satan was allowed to control the weather to do evil things because God allowed him to do that and consumed much of what Job owns, So that's the second trial. That's a natural disaster. Is Satan behind natural disasters? Not every natural disaster, but probably some of them. Uh, verse 17, what else happened? Well, the Chaldeans uh, formed three bands and made a raid on the camels of Job and took them and slew more servants with the edge of the sword. Uh, Job's possessions and everything he owns is being devastated. Satan, Satan spearheaded that. Satan controls the nations and evil people to do His bidding. That's why Jesus said in John 8, you are of your, your father the devil. Uh, the fourth thing that happened is verse 18. While he was still speaking, another also came to Job and said, your sons and your daughters. Okay, ten children that he loved. Your sons and your daughters were eating, all ten of them. And they were drinking wine. They were just together. They weren't carousing, getting drunk. They were just together, eating, drinking, just normally together, getting together as siblings at the oldest brother's house. Verse 19, And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and the house fell on all the young people, and they died. All ten children of Job died instantaneously as a result of a natural disaster. Those of you that are parents and you have children, can you just think of how devastating is would be, or maybe for some of you, it is when your children die, especially in this manner. A spontaneous, instant, instantaneous disaster that is totally unexpected. Absolutely devastating. Your sons and your daughters were eating. They all died. At the end of verse 19. Verse 20. And then Job arose. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He went into mourning. He fell to the ground. And he complained? No. Stuck his fist up at God? No. Cursed and blamed somebody else? No. This is amazing. Verse This is why God said He was a righteous man. Unlike no other, verse 20, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped God. Isn't that amazing? That's really unthinkable. That is humanly impossible. Only by God's help could someone do that in light of those circumstances. And listen to what Job's prayer was. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord, Yahweh, gave and the Lord has taken away. Life is from God. Death is from God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin. In terms of his attitude about his suffering towards God. He did not curse God. Through all this, Job did not sin. Nor did he blame God. He didn't blame God. When was the last time something bad happened to you? Or a severe trial is the temptation there to blame God. God, this is your fault. We're going to see that shouldn't be a Christian attitude. Uh, and then, so Satan did those first four things that brought trials into Job's life, and now Satan wants to crank it up. And so he goes to Yahweh, God, and he says, well, I want to do more. Job hasn't turned against you yet, but let me crank up the heat. Let me touch him. And God says, okay, you can touch Job, but you can't kill him. You can't take his life. And so Satan says, goody. So in chapter 2, verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and he smote. He afflicted Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. His entire body is covered in painful, gruesome sores. And he was like that way for a long time. Uh, smote Job with sores, uh, sore boils from the sole of his feet. And then it says in verse 8, that, uh, and then they would crust up and bloody and all that stuff and get hard. And then it says in verse 8 that he took a pot or a piece of like a broken pot and he'd scrape himself. He was itching so bad. Scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Verse 9. Then there's the encouraging wife Job had. Verse 9. And I can understand her frustration. I wouldn't want to kiss this guy either. Verse 9. Then Job's wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Are you still a believer? How much more can God take from our life before you give up on God? That's what she's saying. She, her faith has lapsed big time. And then she says this amazing statement at the end of verse 9. Curse God and die. Can you imagine a wife saying that to her husband? And the response is amazing as well. Job, a righteous man, he is, he is a model godly man. He, he could have responded a lot of different ways. Be quiet. How dare you? Or or he could have said, "Yeah, you're right." He didn't. He knew what was true. He knew what was right. She was overrun with her emotions and he sticks to truth, verse 10. But that means contrary to what his wife just told him in light of the circumstances. After all, this woman just lost 10 of her children. You can't deprive a mother than anything more than the life of her children. Nevertheless, Job knew where the priorities were. He knew where his foundation was. Verse 10, But Job said to his wife, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. You're not speaking like a woman of God. You're not speaking like a woman of faith. How dare you curse God? You want me to curse God, my Creator and Maker? Then verse 10, Shall we we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity as well? We believe that God is in charge of everything. He's in control of everything, don't we? We believe in a sovereign God. This is amazing insight on Job's part. Again, this is supernatural wisdom and fortitude that he's been given by God to even think this way in light of these circumstances. The next time you have a trial, try to do what Job did and see how difficult it is. At the end of verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, rebuking his wife was not a sin. It was the appropriate thing. She needed to hear that. And he refused to blame God through all of this. We don't know how long this suffering went on. could have been weeks, could have been months, could have been years. But it went on a long time. And then the rest of the book, um, he he meets three friends, three best buddies. They come and try to console him. They don't have any biblical wisdom. Uh, He gets fed up with them. Then there's another guy, Elihu. Uh, comes along and says yeah, I heard what those three guys said, but I've got more wisdom than that at the very end of the book God listens to everybody and finally God takes over okay Job those four guys didn't know what they were talking about Let me tell you the truth about evil and suffering and so in Job 38 39 and 40 God takes over all the way to chapter 42 and God sets the record straight About how to have a biblical view towards evil and suffering and Job repents and realizes Uh, He shouldn't have listened to his friends, which he didn't for the most part, and he also uh, had totally wrong perspective about evil and suffering, and he thought he knew why he was suffering. And God's telling him, no, you didn't. And then Job realized, no, I didn't. I I kept saying, why, why, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Have you ever asked that question in the midst of a trial? Why is this happening to me? And the point of Job is, Job never got the answer correct as to why this was happening to him until God told him why. The point was, you don't know why. You're not in charge. And that's one of the practical lessons to take away from Job. If you're going through trial and suffering and evil, don't spend your time commiserating about why. You're not God. I'm not God. Trust God. He knows why. Trust in the one who knows why. And therein lies our comfort and solid foundation. So there is a reason uh, for suffering. And so I wanted to read Job 1 through 2 to set the foundation because that pretty much uh, lays a path for us for the rest of what I wanted to say that we can go through rather quickly. So there is a reason for suffering. Three biblical reasons. Uh, a, there's God's wrath. God brings suffering. God's wrath. That's Romans 8.20 and 22. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the entire earth. That was His wrath. Punishment for sin. Why is there pain and evil suffering in the world? There's really only one answer. Because of sin. Adam and Eve brought sin into the world and as a result, we lived in a cursed Fallen, corrupt world. And from that comes all evil and suffering. So the problem of evil and suffering is not impossible to understand. I mean, to answer, it's easy to answer. It's hard to deal with and hard to understand. It's easy to answer. Sin is the problem, the curse is the problem. That is clear. Romans 8, three times Paul says, the creation was, all of creation, was subjected to futility or a curse by God. The whole creation groans and suffers together until now. Three times, Paul said, the entire creation groans. Groaning, groaning, groaning. The earth itself, the entire animal kingdom, all of creation and all human beings and the angelic realm. It has all been cursed. And there's a lot of groaning. I don't know if there's a lot of groaning in your life. There's a lot of groaning in my life because that's the lot we have in a fallen cursed earth that's the bad news there's good news the earth was cursed by god genesis 5:29 so three reasons for suffering in this world god's wrath b be is because of our fallenness our fallenness our finiteness our fallenness the fact that we are sinners we are cursed And as a result, we bear the byproduct. As a matter of fact, Genesis 3.17, God said this to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and the two of you disobeyed me, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is earth because of you. You will live in a cursed earth. Life is going to be hard from now on, Adam, and everybody else that follows after you. In toil, in toil, an excruciating, uh, bloody, sweaty pain. That's what it means. You shall eat of it. That's how you're going to get your existence. That's our lot in life. My job is hard. Yeah, that's because of Genesis 3.17. Life is hard. Yeah, that's true for everybody. It's universal. It's the curse of God. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This is the lot of fallen humanity. And as a result, we have great suffering. And then finally, so we've got God's wrath, our fallenness, and then see this supernatural component, satanic opposition. First Peter five eight we already saw it Job chapter one what is Satan doing and his angels he's roaming around the earth trying to seek and uh, whom he can devour and shred to put, to tempt to destroy he's called the destroyer he's deceiving people that is what Satan does he's alive and active right now did you think about Satan when you woke up from the time you woke up till you got to church if you didn't you got your defenses down he is vicious he is relentless he is nonstop he is incorrigible he hates God he hates God's people he hates humanity. He is supernatural. He is powerful. But He's on a leash. But He's out to destroy. So that's where suffering comes from. God's wrath, our fallenness, and satanic opposition. Really, those are the only three possibilities. And God's in control of all of it. That's the good news. God is in control of all of it. God knows about all of it. He knows when it's going to end. He knows to what extent it will happen. Uh, Takes us to point number three after there is reason for suffering. And that is that God controls suffering. We've hinted at this A little bit already. This is explicit all throughout Scripture. God controls suffering and controls all suffering. He is sovereign over it all. And the word sovereign, the second part of the word has the word reign. R-E-I-G-N. Reign. That's what kings do. They reign. They have all authority. God has sovereignty. He has all authority over everything that ever happens in life. He is in control. He knew it was going to happen. He allowed it to happen. He will put an end to everything that does happen to His glory. God is sovereign over everything. There's nothing going on in your life. No evil, no suffering, no pain, no emotional distress that God doesn't know about, that God doesn't care about, and that God can't deal with on your behalf. That is the great hope of the Christian. How great is our God? The unbeliever does not have that hope. They don't have that resource. I was thinking about, man, can you, I can't imagine going through 80, 70 years of life not being a Christian. How, how do they do that? How do they survive? How do they go on another day? What is their foundation? What is their recourse? Who do they cry out to? So God is sovereign over all suffering. Point B, you know what? He's going to use it for his glory. God uses everything for His glory. God uses everything to put Himself on display in His greatness. God even uses suffering and our weakness to put Himself on display because He puts us in situations or allows us to get into situations where we don't have any resources in and of ourselves. And then our last resort and only resort is we've got to cry out to God, Save me! And in God's very nature, He is Savior and Provider and Comforter. And when we're crying out to God for who He is, then we're crying out to God at the most intimate level and it gives Him glory. God doesn't want us to be self-sufficient. A self-sufficient human being is the antithesis of a humble, godly person. And that's why Job was such a righteous man. He was a humble man. We see that especially at the end of the book. So God will use, no matter what's going on in your life, for His glory. And usually we don't know why, do we? God, how, what are You doing? God, how can you possibly use this for your glory? I don't understand. That's true. We don't understand. But God's in control of it. He will use it for His glory. Amazingly, God will use it for our good. There's another one that hurts my brain. Romans 8.28 I remember when I was teaching at a high school in Southern California to seniors. We were talking about pain and suffering in an apologetics class I was teaching in the early 90s. And I made this point to 17- and 18-year-old teenagers at a Christian school. God will use suffering for our good. And I got a major reaction in, in the class from all these Christian kids. What are you talking about? They, that was very confusing. They were frustrated by that. Some of them weren't. Some of them got it. Some of them didn't. And one girl asked a very specific question. And I read this. It was after I read this verse, Romans 8:28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. And I read that verse after I made the point that God uses even bad things for our good, even evil things for our good, even painful things for our good. And then I read this verse and she got very upset after I read Romans 8, 28. And she asked me, so so God says everything is good. And I said, whoa, no wonder you're upset. You didn't understand the verse. That is a great question. Let's read it again. This verse doesn't say that God thinks everything is good. This verse doesn't say that evil is good. Suffering is good. Pain is good. It doesn't say that. Evil is bad. God hates evil. God hates sin. God hates suffering. It pains Him. That's His heart. So what is the verse saying? God can take these evil things, these bad things. He doesn't pronounce it good. He says He's going to turn those bad things into good for His glory and for the good of those who know and love Him. In the end, it will be for your good. But it is not good. The suffering you're going through is not good. The suffering you're going through is bad. It is painful. God understands that. So then when I was able to explain it, then the light went on, and then she was comforted from that reality. Oh, okay, so I can continue on thinking these things are bad in my life. Yeah, they are bad. But the great promise, we know, we Christians only, we know that God, creator of the universe, causes all things, causes, He's in charge, He is sovereign over everything. All things to work, to get to work, there's a plan. To work together for good. Ultimate good. Glorious good. For God's good. For believers good. This good may not happen in your life. This good may not happen in my lifetime. But guaranteed, all good will happen in the future. In heaven. When we are with God in glory. That's the promise of the book of Revelation. So what a great verse. God is going to use this for our good. And many times He uses it for our good right now. He uses suffering, pain, Hardships to mold us, to conform us, to bring us to repentance, to make us Christ-like. That is good, isn't it? Refining our character, uh, changing the desires of our heart, bringing them into conformity with God's desires. Because we're a hardened, calloused, prideful people. And only God can change a human heart and mold a human heart. And He uses suffering and hardship to do that. He'll do all for God's good, He will do all. Also, for our good as believers. And then finally, God controls suffering. D. Here's the good news. He's gonna. He will put an end to it all. He will put an end to all suffering. He will put an end to all pain. Isn't that wonderful? We, we just went through Revelation. I do want to read Revelation 21:4. Is that whole chapter the new heaven, the new earth? Uh, this is what it's, This is reality. This is yet future. It's really going to happen. Take comfort in this. If you've got a trial right now, if you're suffering right now. Take comfort in this great promise if you're a Christian. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. What's that? The first heaven and the first earth are the cursed heaven and the cursed earth, the bad heaven and the bad earth. That's being done away. It would be passing passing away, and there's no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city. Then he goes on and describes heaven in verse 4. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning. That's internal distress. Or crying, that is external grief. Or pain, of all kinds, the first things that pass away. Isn't that a great truth? That is the comfort of the Christian. That's the reality in our future. God controls suffering. He's going to put an end to all of it. Number four, Christians are called... This is radical. Christians are called to endure suffering. If you are a Christian, you are called to suffer. Whether you realized it or not, whether you welcomed it or not, whether you expected it or not, that's the calling of a Christian in this life. That's why this life is not our home. We are pilgrims here. We are sojourners. We don't fit here. We don't connect. We're going upstream. We're going the wrong direction. We're going against the grain in this life. Our desires mismatch what reality is in life. Very frustrating. That's why in Romans 7, 14-25, Paul is wringing his hands and pulling his hair out. There's a mismatch here. Of what I desire and what reality is. But Paul says in Philippians one twenty nine, for you are called not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Are you suffering? Have you suffered? And mostly Paul means but it includes all suffering, but the emphasis is on suffering for Christ in a multitude of different ways. Matthew five, ten, eleven, Jesus said this Blessed are you, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when you suffer for being a believer. Blessed are you. When you get insulted for being a Christian, blessed are you on account of representing me before evil people. Blessed are you. You're blessed. It pleases God. Suffering and being Christ-like pleases God. Or when you're suffering in any kind of way, whether it's physical suffering or a physical medical malady or a financial hardship or a death in the family, when you deal with that suffering in a godly manner, that pleases God. The bad thing doesn't please God. How you handled it in a godly manner... Pleases God. It gives Him glory. That's the key. And it's not easy to do. It's very hard. Christians are called to endure suffering. Four a flurry of points. Uh, first, we need to do, first thing we need to do, at letter A just practice. acknowledge it. If you've got suffering and pers- uh, persecution or suffering and trials in your life, you need to be honest. You can't just be dismissive. Acknowledge it. And you could just read the book of Psalms and the psalmist all over is acknowledging it. He's not hiding. He's like in the fiddler on the roof, the fat Jewish guy, uh, Tevye, who's always talking to God and praying to God and he has a miserable life and he's enduring suffering all the time. He's honest. He's talking to God. That's the Psalms. That's what the Psalms do. David, talking to God. He's being honest. That's what we need to do. Psalms 3-7 through in particular, very uh, clear example of that. Uh, What else do we need to do? Since we're called to endure suffering, we need to trust God through it. Trust God through it. That's what Job did. Job 1.18-22, we already saw that. What did God do in the midst of the trial? He didn't blame God. It says he worshipped God. He trusted God through it. No, wife, I'm not going to curse God. I'm going to trust Him. He's the giver of life. He's the giver of good. He's the giver of all things, including adversity. And then at the end, if you got a moment, you can flip to Job 42 at the end of the book where these principles are reiterated. So Job's learned all of his lessons. God gave his lecture from uh, Job 38 to 42 and then 41, and then Job responds and he says, Okay, God, I understand now. I didn't see it at first, but I understand you now. Uh, Job 42, verse 1, Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours, God, can be thwarted. You're amazing, God. Verse 4, Here now and I will speak. I will ask you and... Please instruct me. Verse 5, I have heard what you've said in the last three chapters. I've been listening with a listening ear. But now my eyes see you clearly. Now I understand. Now I understand suffering and evil. And it's viewed through the lens of the character of God. That's the secret in verse 6. Now my eyes see you. Therefore, here was his response in verse 6, Therefore I retract I take back every sinful, short-sighted, faithless thing that I said and did, and I repent in dust and ashes. I put my hand over my mouth. That's being teachable. That's trusting God. That's leaning on him. That's what we need to do. That's what Job did. That's the hardest thing to do. Well, how do we do that? Well, we've got to do some specific things to pull that off. Let her see. You need to ask God for help. Ask him explicitly. God help me. Psalm verse five or Psalm five. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. The psalmist is in turmoil. He is in trial. He is suffering. He is pleading with God. He's making. He's commanding God to do things. Give ear. Consider. Heed. And it goes on with all these imperatives. God, move on my behalf. God doesn't always move in behalf of the psalmist the way the psalmist wants him to. Sometimes God does. But the psalmist is not impugned or push down for making these pleas to God, he has a personal relationship with God. When you have a personal relationship, you can talk with that person, debate with that person, argue with that person. When you do it with God, you've got to do it with fear and reverence. And you might be humbled as a result of doing it, but it's a real dynamic interchange, person to person. That is the psalmist in Psalm 5. We need to do the same. Recognize our trial. Acknowledge it. Trust God. Ask for His help. Not only ask for specific help, James 1.5, ask for wisdom. Does any of you lack wisdom? Then ask of God. Ask of God. He will give you the wisdom. If you ask Him in faith, if you don't doubt, if you doubt, you're double minded, don't think God will give you anything. He won't answer your prayer, He won't give you wisdom. That great verse on pleading for God for wisdom, many times people forget that is in the context of suffering. Because in verse 2 it says, Count it all joy when you endure various trials. When you are in the midst of trials and suffering in your life, that 's when we need the greatest t- that 's the greatest time for asking God for wisdom, right? Wisdom number one, because we just feel so helpless. God, why is this happening? God, give me help. what should I do? Give me direction. We need wisdom, and God promises to give wisdom if we ask in faith, if we ask the right way, if we depend upon the right resources for wisdom, the Bible is clear you 've got to go to the right resources for wisdom god 's word provides clear, specific wisdom for life god 's holy Spirit. The Comforter who lives in us leads us into wisdom through the knowledge of Scripture. The book of Proverbs is clear that there's wisdom in a multitude of godly counselors. You've got to make sure that you're talking to the right people who are going to give you biblical wisdom in dealing with suffering and trial. And not just one person. You don't just gravitate to the one person. Oh, I like what they say all the time. I like what they say all the time. They tell me what I want to hear. No, it's a multitude, different perspectives. God speaks through those people, through His Spirit, through His Word. You've got this incredible reservoir and resource to draw upon for wisdom in the times of trial and suffering. That is God's solution. And God will give you wisdom. As a matter of fact, that is the one prayer that I am confident that God answers every single time you pray it out of every prayer. That prayer is always answered in my life. Most of my prayers aren't specifically answered the way I want them answered. Because I'm usually short-sighted or self-centered. Dear God, give me this. Dear God, get me out of this trial by Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Wait, it's 4 o'clock. That didn't happen. But this prayer is always answered. Give me wisdom in the midst of the situation. It's amazing. We need to take advantage of that prayer more often. And then uh, God, uh, Christians are called to endure... Leave room for mystery in the midst of trial and suffering. There's gotta be, otherwise you're gonna go crazy asking the question why. There's a book on the book cart called Why. Why this, why that, why is this happening, why are you doing this to me? That's the theme of the book of Job. Job's friends, Job's four friends spend 37 chapters telling him why he's all messed up. And Job responds in about 20 of those chapters telling them why they're wrong and why he thinks they're messed up and all five of them are wrong. And they're all trying to answer the question, why? And then God comes along in chapter 38 and says, you guys are all wrong. That is not why. So there needs to be room for mystery. And so the only reason that Job actually knew what was going on is because God supernaturally decided to reveal supernatural revelation to him in the content of a personal visitation and told him, here's what's going on. And then Job probably wrote this down in a book. And, and God revealed to him that Satan was involved in behind the scenes and Job had no idea that was going on when it happened. But that doesn't happen for us. God hasn't, Jesus has never come to me personally and talked to me and told me why there's suffering in my life and people's lives that I know. I haven't had a heavenly vision. I've got the Bible, I've got the Holy Spirit. And in the meantime, there's a whole bunch of mystery. There's a lot of stuff I just don't know. I don't know. Pastor, this is going on in my life. Why is it happening? I don't know. Well, what kind of pastor are you? I'm a finite, short sighted pastor, dude. Sorry. I love this verse. Leave room for mystery. Romans 11.33. This is after Paul is kind of going back and forth bantering with this guy in chapter 9 and 10. an imaginary critic who keeps asking these questions like a four-year-old. Why? 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 And Paul finally says, you know what? I've had it with your why questions. You're getting annoying. You don't have the right view of God. Verse 33, oh, oh, what you don't understand. The depth and the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unmeasurable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. They're, they're past finding out. You can't figure out the mind of God and what He's doing. But you've got to be comforted with Genesis 18 like Abraham was and be and stay there. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the question is, yes. And that settled the issue when Abraham kept asking God, why, why, why? You've got to leave room for mystery because that requires faith in the Christian life as we walk by faith, not by sight, right? We don't. By faith. Walking by faith really pleases God. Actually, that's what pleases God more than anything. Walking by faith. Trusting in Him. Giving Him glory. Leave room for mystery. And then don't blame God. James 1.13. He's talking about the trial and he says, whatever you do, don't blame God in the midst of the trial. God has never tempted anybody with evil. We already saw in Job where it says that Job did not blame God through all this. God was in control. God knew what was going on. God had a plan. God was going to bring it to a conclusion. But God is not directly inflicting Job. Satan is inflicting Job. Satan is harming Job. Something bad in your life goes on. Again, don't bring the fist up to God. God, why? Some Christians think that God's up in heaven and He's got a little voodoo doll that looks like every one of us on earth. Made out of hay like they had on Gilligan's Island. And God, everyone, boy, He didn't like you, so He takes out a pen and He starts poking you. Take that, McManus. Ah, how does that feel? Ah, ah. What kind of God is that? That is a warped, corrupted, distorted view of God. That is not a holy, good God. That is not the God of the Bible. Change your thinking if you think that way. It's Satan down in hell and he's got his little voodoo dolls. And he's poking away. He's the enemy. So don't blame God. That's F. G. Think of heaven. Think of heaven. Colossians 3. Get your mind off of earth. Get your eyes up on heaven. Get your eyes on the Savior. Fix your eyes on Jesus, Romans 12. Think about heavenly things, not earthly things. Our home is there. Everything is there. Our Savior is there. Our future is there. Our destiny is there. Our perfection is there. Our reward is there. Our inheritance is there. Everything that is precious to us is culminated in heaven. You know, one of the reasons that God brings evil and suffering and trials and hard times to us in this life is to wean us from this life. That's why in Revelation, unbelievers are called earth dwellers 13 times. Unbelievers, they love the earth. This is their home. They want to stay here forever. No, not saints. We're from another... We are not of this world. Not of this world. Oh, I should come up with a closing brand line. But anyway, not of this world. So think of heaven. That's Romans 8.18. What a great verse that is on the front of your bulletin. Man, the glories of heaven. Nothing bad on this earth can even compare to the glories in heaven. Uh, H, what else as a Christian? Well, we need to endure it. Endure the trial. Endure the suffering. Endure it trusting God. Enduring according to God's plan. I do want to read 1 Corinthians 10.13. I was a brand new Christian maybe two months into my faith. I was distraught, distressed, depressed over the fact that I had eight brothers and sisters who didn't know Jesus and were not responding positively. I had parents who didn't know Christ and weren't responding positively. And I was in the cafeteria eating my Cheerios with Nels Ortland, who was the son of Ray Ortland, great preacher and pastor, and brother of Ray Ortland, who's a current pastor, and I didn't know who Nels was. Just a friendly guy. We're sitting there, and I'm telling him, "Why are you downcast, my child?" He said something like that. It was real spiritual, and I told him everything. And he knew I was a, He figured out I was a new Christian. This guy didn't know anything, so he opened up. We opened up. He goes, "Open up to First Corinthians 10," and he read this verse to me. And I want to read it to you. This was 25 years ago. I will never forget it. Good Cheerios, too. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, no trial, no suffering has overtaken you, but such is common to man. You know what, Cliff? Other people have gone through this trial. Other people are going through this trial. People in the Bible have gone through this trial. You are not alone. You are not alone. There are people who can sympathize with you. I can understand what you're going through. You don't have a unique trial. If you think you've got... There are Christians who think they have a unique trial. You're wrong. It fits in one of those five boxes I mentioned earlier, and this verse says so. You don't have a unique trial. It's a real trial, but it's not unique. There's nothing new under the sun. No temptation has overtaken you. By the way, that word is graphic, overtaking you. It's ambushed. Man, you know, that's what trials do sometimes, don't they? You just get blindsided. You are ambushed. You are taken hostage from behind, and you were totally caught off guard, unexpected. Man, those are the worst kind of trials. And that's what this verse is talking about. You have no temptation has ambushed you, even though it's vicious, but such is common to man. So this has happened before. We've seen this before. The good news is because we've seen this before, this has been diagnosed before. This has been played out before. There is a precedent for this. suffering. God has the solution to your problem. Scripture is sufficient. God is sufficient. The spirit of God is sufficient. Your salvation is sufficient for your trial. That's the point of this verse. No temptation has overtaken you, except which is common to man. God is faithful. How do you deal with trials and suffering? You start with the character of God. Remember what I said? He's not a voodoo doll poking you with pins. Job never cursed God. You start with God. Get your mind right. Recalibrate. Get focused. Clear your emotions. God is faithful. If you know Him, He is your Father. He loves you. You are secure in His hand. Jesus is your Savior. Therein lies our stability in the midst of a trial. I don't care what it is, even death. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And God will not allow you to be tempted or suffer beyond what you are able. And then we say, yes, it feels like it! This is, man, you gotta just trust God here. But this is what the Scripture said. The only reason I believe this verse is because it's in the Bible. If it wasn't in Scripture, I wouldn't believe it. That phrase. God will not allow you to go beyond what you are able to handle. He is stretching you, stretching you. No pain, no gain. God's faithful. He cares about you. He knows every hair on your head and has it numbered and named. He's faithful. He loves you. If you're a believer, He, he won't allow you to go through these temptations beyond what you're able. Well, my friend died. Wasn't that beyond what my friend was able to go through? Well, no. That My friend, he didn't have to go through a trial. He died and then he went to heaven. As soon as he died, I was suffering more than he was. He was in glory. He's still in glory. He's not suffering. This is for those of us who remain. We can endure. But with the temptation... God will provide the way of escape. With the temptation, God will uh, provide the way of escape. Don't you want the escape hatch in the midst of a trial? For years, i scratched my head, man, where is the escape hatch in the trial? Where is the escape hatch? Is it around this way? Is it left and around this way? Oh, maybe it's over and you've got to jump real high. No, let's dig down under and go that way. And so this whole human idea is the way of escape is getting around the trial, bypassing the trial, doing anything to not go through the trial. That is not the way of escape there's an escape hatch and only one escape hatch and it's the end of the trial you have to go through the trial and at the end of the trial is the escape hatch and i know that isn't appealing to us as humans is it it's like wow but there is an escape there's a time when it will end that happened in job's life by the way we saw the escape hatch he had to go through the trial he had to lose 10 children he had to lose everything he owned his body was physically attacked he lost all of his wealth all of his friends all of his servants He lost all of that and God at the end gave him the escape hatch. God healed his body and then God gave him ten new children through his wife. They didn't get a divorce. That was the grace of God. And God replenished ten new children and everything else. twofold, At least. It's amazing, isn't it? Now God doesn't promise to do that for all of us all the time, but He did for Job. And I don't think anybody here has suffered as much as Job. So, There's an escape hatch. And with the temptation, God is going to show you what it is in order that you may be able to endure. God wants us to endure. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to trust Him through it and make it through by His grace. So finally, with that, welcome it. Welcome the trial. James 1, 2. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. There's another verse that people get messed up. You mean I'm supposed to be happy and excited about the trial? No, that isn't what that verse says. Count it all joy. You count what you count joy doesn't mean happiness and warm fuzzies joy is a deep-seated contentment in your heart knowing that god is totally in control and you have a supernatural peace guarding your thoughts and your emotions that is joy and in the midst of a trial you can have that kind of joy and your joy is first and foremost in god because he's faithful not in a lousy trial there is no joy in that there's no joy in the suffering it's in god your joy is in god not only that there's a personal kind of joy. Your joy is the end result of the trial as God uses trials to strengthen us, to grow us. So therein lies the joy. So welcome it. Embrace it. And God can use trials for different reasons. And that's why I put on there, welcome it, because you don't know why God could be bringing this trial into your life. It could be a warning to warn you there's sin in your life. God could be uh, bringing trial into your life and suffering to chasten us. That's Hebrews 12, 5-11. Uh, There could be suffering in our life as a result of just living a godly life and we're being persecuted for the name of Christ that pleases God. Welcome it. And then finally, point number five, the most important point about suffering. Remember I said the skeptics for 3,000 years have told us that Christianity and the Bible doesn't have an answer to suffering, evil, pain. Yeah, it does. It's got the greatest answer there ever is, the greatest event in the history of the world, the greatest suffering that ever took place is the culmination and highlight of the greatest act of love in the history of the world. Jesus Christ, who came down here and subjected Himself to suffering and pain and evil like nobody else in the history of the world, and He did it in a planned manner by dying on the cross, being crucified for the sin of the world, being punished by God the Father, being inflicted and tormented by Satan in the process, and all these people who hated Him on earth... So Jesus was subjected to greater pain and evil and suffering than anybody in the history of the world and He did it for a specific purpose to save us, to save sinners for our good, for God's glory. That's point number five. Jesus suffered to give you and me life. Spiritual life, eternal life, perfect life. So God can identify with you you when you have suffering. Jesus can personally identify with all of us when we have evil and suffering. And as a matter of fact, one of the callings of a Christian is to welcome and take on suffering in this life because when we suffer, we are most like Christ. Man, think about that. Among other things, when we suffer, we are most like Christ. Do you want to be Christ-like? Well, if you do, then you're going to be subjected to suffering in this life. First Peter 2.21 said that Jesus Christ suffered for you. He suffered for me. On the cross, Isaiah 53, the entire thing is a prophecy about how Jesus would suffer grueling pain. Physical, emotional, spiritual torment, isolation, crucifixion, whipping, scourging. He was crushed for our iniquities. By His scourging, we are healed. By His suffering, we have forgiveness of sin in this life, which is eternal life, and also in the future. Glory to come. I know that was a whirlwind and a lot to take in, but... Let's think about that and meditate on these great truths, especially that last point. Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the one who can identify with every single one of us as our Lord, our Savior, and our older brother. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together, the opportunity to worship, to be with the saints. And God, I thank You that Your Word is sufficient. It has the answers. It has the answers that we need that are sufficient for Living life, life that is hard, living in a cursed earth under satanic opposition with sin that lives in us as finite human beings, God, it is hard, yet your grace is sufficient if we know you personally. Thank you so much for that. I thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit, our Comforter, Scripture, which is the truth of your Word and salvation in Christ. We give you the glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen.